Welcome to the Write It Down podcast with the 1513 Network. I'm Tim Murata bringing you one-on-one interviews to challenge, inspire, and encourage. I am standing in for my daughter, Brooke, for a special edition of WIDPOD with my old high school friend, Rob Talton. We invited Rob on the show to share his personal cancer survivor story. He shares about his hardships, his healing, and everything in between. He was greeted with miracles at every turn, and he always chose perseverance. Rob is a father of three, an athlete, an accomplished musician, and my friend. For more of his story, sit back, relax, and get your pens ready, because this is Write It Down. All right, welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Rob Talton. Rob is a longtime friend of mine. I am Tim Murata, Brooke's dad, sitting in for her on the show today. Rob, welcome to Write It Down podcast. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Love to have you today. So Rob and I go back almost 35 years, met each other in junior high and high school. And the, at the time of this recording, we're about to embark on our 31st class high school reunion. Uh, so Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. I will be uh, 50 years old in February. Um, I was born in Orlando, grew up uh, early part of my life there and uh, Winter Park area and then Altamont Springs. And then I uh, moved to Palm Bay when I was 13 and uh, went to school there, met, met yourself and lots of other great lifelong friends that I've known since the eighth grade and really enjoyed those years of my life. Those are some of the best years of my life, really. And, and then um, we moved to Jacksonville. My family moved to Jacksonville. I went to college there, met my wife, and uh, have three wonderful children. Uh, Cole, my oldest son, who's a chiropractic student in Daytona, is 24. My daughter, Abigail, is uh, 21, almost 22. And she's uh, a student at Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi. And then my youngest son, Jack, is 19 years old and just moved to Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee, where he's going to be studying sound engineering and music production through uh, the Dark Horse Institute. So, uh, yeah, I, um, professionally, I have, I have two professional lives. I, I work in the commercial banking world, and then I'm also a professional musician. So you mentioned you came to Palm Bay uh, in eighth grade, and I just heard this story today uh, that you might have danced with a special someone at the eighth grade dance. Tim, you are correct on that, sir. Uh, my very first dance with a girl, where it was just me and said girl, was an uh, eighth grade dance. I, I think it was called the Spring Fling or something at the Palm Bay Rec Center. And um, that first great dance was with Brooke's mother. Oh, oh Brooke's mom. Brooke's mom, who very happens to be your wife, yes. So that's very interesting, Rob. Yes, I, I, that never, is I didn't know that until today. Um, uh, just so you know, Rob and I played uh, 16 holes of golf today. Rob is a very good golf player. We only were able to get in 16 because we had time constraints today. But anyways, that's the background with Rob. The true reason we have you on the show today, Rob, is because uh, you're a cancer survivor. And um, that is, a, you have an incredible story to share. 
Um, and so what I'd like for you to do, if you don't mind, is pick up in 2010 um, with what was going on in your life back then. Can you bring us up to speed? Sure. So in 2010, uh, I had been fortunate all my life. I'd been an athlete and uh, had always been pretty strong and in pretty good, pretty good shape physically. Never really had any, any health issues, no serious illnesses. No, I think I broke my elbow when I was like in fourth or fifth grade. Um, some sports injuries and stuff like that, but nothing serious. 2010, I developed this recurring, what would be described as a dry cough. And, and then it, it didn't go away and it lasted for months. And then it became a, a painful cough. I, I had actually been to the doctor several times and my internal medicine doctor is my primary care physician. And I kept telling him, I'm like, look, there's something wrong. I'm, I'm coughing all the time. And so he changed a blood pressure med prescription thinking it, it was a side effect from a, a blood pressure med. And, and I guess that's a, a fairly common thing to happen, but that wasn't what it was. And so I developed pneumonia and started uh, coughing up blood, a lot of it. And uh, my boss at the time uh, took me to the emergency room. I had a 104.7 fever and uh, had blood coming out of my nose and out of my mouth. And um, so the uh, nurses took me straight back. From there, I went straight to the critical care unit. And uh, it was at that time they did a, an MRI and a CT scan and a chest X-ray and all that stuff. But uh, they found uh, tumors in my, my lungs, my left lung, um, a malignant growth that uh, was the source of, of all the pain and, and everything. And so um, I was uh, transported to the University of Virginia Hospital, UVA Hospital in Charlottesville, which is about two hours south of where I live. Um, I live in Winchester, Virginia, which is about 60 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., in the kind of the, the northernmost tip of the Shenandoah Valley in the Blue Ridge Mountains and all that. And so I was transported by ambulance down to Charlottesville and uh, saw a, a, a critical care doctor, pulmonologist, uh, Dr. Rose, who um, did a, a biopsy, a very painful lung biopsy. Lung biopsies really hurt badly. And so I actually had two biopsies. I had what's called a lavage treatment where the, the surgeon sticks a tube down your nose and they wash your lungs. Um, and then they, they take samples of what they find. And then I had a full-blown, what's called a thoracotomy, where they cut you open and, and uh, take samples of your lung tissue. And just that alone nearly killed me. It was so incredibly painful. And um, so it was at that time that, that they found that I had, you know, growths on my left lung. And um, they removed a piece of my left lung. It was called a, the lobe. Um, that was cut out altogether. And uh, I took some uh, oral, oral chemo medication um, during that time and, and a lot of steroids. I was taking um, 60 milligrams of prednisone for a long time, which is a lot. That's a lot of steroids. 
and it does a lot of damage to your body. And um, so I eventually recovered from that um, and had a, a series of um, pneumonias. I had, I've had pneumonia seven times in, since 2010, including that particular pneumonia. Um, 2015, or 2013, if you fast forward three years, I developed um, a great deal of back pain, um, and, and it actually hurt my chest as well. Went through a whole cardiac workup and you know stress tests and EKGs and EEGs and all of that. All of that came back negative, and I was still having a great deal of pain in my chest and a great deal of pain in my back, but, it, but no one was looking in my back. They were looking at my, at my lungs and places where I've had problems before. Well, I, I advocated for myself and almost demanded that they do, uh, the doctors do an MRI of my brain all the way down to my lumbar spine, hoping that um, whatever it is that's wrong with me would be found because we, as human beings, we all know our bodies pretty well. We, we know when we don't feel well. And so I knew that I wasn't feeling well, and I knew that I had developed um, this strange sensation in my legs like they were asleep, and, and they wouldn't wake up, and it wouldn't go away. And so there was this burning and tingling that, that got progressively worse to the point where it felt like I had dipped both of my legs into two large buckets of ice water. When things got to feeling cold and wet, that's when I went to the hospital and demanded that um, an MRI be taken of my, you know, my whole body, basically, the brain down to the lumbar spine. And it was at that time that um, they found tumors in both of my lungs, my thoracic spine and brain, and uh, gave me um, not the best prognosis. Um, so... I was given uh, two months to live if I did not do chemo, and two years if I did. And uh, so um, that was a really tough time. Um, and so, I, actually, I'm sorry, 2013, I had a tumor in my back. That was the leg issue. I, I apologize. 2000, January of 2013, so I had surgery to remove a tumor in my back in my thoracic spine, and it, um, it affected my, my legs, uh, was the worst part of it, so I don't have any feeling in my legs from the waist down on the outside of both legs and the tops of my feet, and I have no feeling on the left side of my chest and around, halfway around my back, and it's because of the nerves that had to be sacrificed to get that tumor out. And um, so I, I was in the hospital as an inpatient for 27 days after that surgery and then another four weeks in a rehab hospital learning how to walk and how to tie my shoes and button a shirt and all those things that we take for granted, all the things that we do every day that we think we're always going to be able to do. And um, I went to, you know months and months of physical therapy, occupational therapy, aqua therapy in the pool to build strength in my legs. Um, 
and I walked with a walker for several months. And then it progressed to a cane, which I walked with for actually years. And, um, and there's still times where, where I could probably benefit from having the cane again. But, um, so fast forward to 2015, and that was when I was just feeling terrible and could not take the pain. And it was in my legs. It was in my back. It was my head was hurting. I had a headache for weeks. It never went away. And I was popping Tylenol and all kinds of stuff and nothing put a dent in it. And um, so I knew something was really wrong. And so I, I asked a good friend of mine to drive me to the hospital and he did. And, and I, this is what I meant to say earlier. I got the chronology wrong, but it was at that time in October of 2015 that, you know, I had tumors everywhere. And so um, I was not given, as I said before, a great prognosis. And I had actually signed um, papers from my bed to go to hospice care. That's how bad it was. And, um, you know, I had never faced death, you know, like that before. I'd been really sick before, and, you know, there's obviously the possibility of dying, you know, with the condition I was in before, but never had anybody tell me I was going to die in a, in a finite period of time, yeah. like put a date on it, a timetable on it. So that's a really uh, terrifying thing to, to hear. It's, it's everybody's worst nightmare. Everybody thinks they know how they will handle news like that should they get it. And then it happens, and then you don't know how to handle it. And so the first few days, I was just in shock and uh, didn't want to talk to anybody, didn't want to keep telling my story over and over and over. And I really just asked people just to leave me alone for a little while. And then um, that, that stage lasted for a while, a couple of weeks probably. And then I was angry for a couple of weeks and didn't didn't understand why these things were happening to me. I'd always considered myself a you know a good person. I was raised by great parents and came up in a great family, and um, I was always kind to people and treated people with kindness, and never thought that anything like this would ever happen to me. And like I said, we all have this impression in our minds of how we how we would handle that news, and then when it happens, it's the most surreal experience you can ever imagine because you lay in bed just replaying the doctor's words over and over and over, and it's the worst thing you can do. Then the worst thing, the other worst thing you can do is to Google what was just said to you. Right. And that makes it even worse. And so I stopped doing that. I stopped researching what was wrong. I stopped researching all the medical terminology and all that, and I was just... Uh, after about four or five weeks, I was, I was ready to just let things go and just die. Um, and however long that, that process takes. And, uh, as I shared before, I, I have three beautiful children that are adults now and it doesn't make them any less beautiful. They're all wonderful kids and, uh, they're fine adults and I'm very proud of them. But uh, I realized I had a lot to live for. 
and um, it wasn't even so much for myself as it was for them. And so my fiance at the time, Nancy, um, was really wonderful in, uh, I have to give her credit for this because she was a very strong person. We're no longer together, but she exhibited a great amount of strength and advocated for me when I was so sick that I couldn't speak up for myself. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot out of, out of you when you're that sick and you have to talk to doctors and you got to worry about your kids and you got to worry about where people are going and where the kids are going to spend the night tonight, you know, all those things. And so my neighbors and friends in the community um, just took over those things for me, made sure my kids were taken care of. My sister and brother-in-law came and took my daughter to Mississippi with them so she could graduate high school and have a normal senior year, as normal as it can be. And um, what I didn't know was all three of my kids were in counseling because of what was happening to me. And uh, so that was hard. Um, So, um, Nancy, as I said, my fiance at the time, she asked to get a second opinion at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center in Baltimore. And so I was uh, transported by ambulance um, later that night. It was a Monday night, and I was transported by ambulance to Hopkins in Baltimore. I arrived at about 7.30 at night, and uh, the... EMTs got me off their gurney and put me on a bed and the nurses came and changed my gown and got me all hooked up to all the machines and everything. And um, my doctor came in and his name is Dr. Levy. And he sat on a, on a stool with wheels and he wheeled the stool over to me. And uh, first thing he said was, he said, I want to apologize for, for the way that you were spoken to um, at the other hospital. And he said, I know that they told you what you were facing, but they gave you a timeline of when things were going to happen, when you're going to die, and all of that. And he said, we don't do that in this hospital. He said, we don't give people odds or percentages or give them the length of time that they've got to live because... If I tell you you got a 10% chance of surviving for a certain amount of time, you're going to focus on the 90% chance that you're not. And that's just a natural feeling that happens in all of us as human beings. So the next thing that he said was he asked if he could put his hand on my shoulder. And I said, yes, sir. And he did. And then he asked if I had any faith at all. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, would you mind if I prayed for you? And I said, no. And so he prayed for me and asked God for wisdom and uh, humility. Um, and he asked uh, for wisdom and how to treat me. And it was the most incredible experience I've ever had with a doctor. And then after that, the very next sentence 
was, when you get out of this hospital, I want you to promise me that you will take 15 minutes a day and walk on real soil, real earth. And he said, take your shoes off if you can. And he said, I want you to walk. And he said, and I want you to pray and, or meditate. He said, I want you to touch something that's alive, that's not attached to your body, like a leaf or a branch, or put your hands in some running water in a stream or a lake or the ocean. He said, and I want you to thank God that you're just alive. And it changed my perspective. on everything. And so um, I went through multiple surgeries, 38 months of chemo, uh, immunotherapy, all kinds of therapy. I got scars all over. And um, but I'm alive. And what he told me was, you're here for a reason. God has been writing this story within you all this time. In the midst of all of this, I had gone through divorce, you know, 10 years ago. I lost everything I ever worked for. I spent tens of thousands of dollars on medical bills just to stay alive. So at nearly 50 years of age, I don't have any of the things that I thought I would have. I thought that I would be nearing retirement and, you know, living in a condo on the beach or golf course or something and kids would be all grown and gone and that would be my life well it's not but that's okay because as as you know my doctor shared with me if I wake up in the morning and I can get out of bed turn and get out of bed put my feet on the ground and stand up it's a good it's a good day nothing else matters I don't worry about traffic. I don't worry about the weather. I don't complain about my job. I don't complain about anything anymore because I'm alive. And nothing in this life is guaranteed. Our very next breath is not guaranteed. Our next hours are not guaranteed. Our next days and weeks and months and years, none of it's guaranteed. And so I learned to live that way. With that perspective, I learned to live truly in the moment. I learned to be grateful for the people around me. I learned to speak to my children in a different way. I learned to talk to my friends in a different way. I learned to talk to people in a different way. And I've had more meaningful conversations in these years since, since I've been sick uh, than I can count. And it has been the best experience of my life. Would I want to go through all those things all over again? Probably not. But if I could not go through those things and have the perspective I have, that would be the best of both worlds. But unfortunately, we have to go through those things sometimes to, to learn um, the lessons that God wants to teach us. And, he, and God has a way of quieting us making us stop. I, my life was a, at a furious pace before all this happened to me. And when you're literally laying in bed with cuffs on your legs and you're, you know, you're Velcroed to the, to the bed and there's a bed alarm, if you, know, if you get out of bed, the alarm goes off and all the nurses come running down to your room and 
all that stuff. Um, that is where God spoke to me the most. And it was during those times when I, I was so helpless. I could not do anything. But it was a long journey. Um, many, many hospitalizations, three different hospitals. And it wasn't just for a day or two. It was weeks and months in the hospital. Um, lots of medicines. Lots of side effects come with those medicines. Um, when I was taking the chemo pills, I, I, did, there were, I couldn't eat a meal without getting sick. It didn't matter what it was. The only thing I could keep down was peanut butter crackers. And um, so I'm grateful that I'm not in that condition. Um, the other thing that was discovered at Johns Hopkins was that what I was fighting at that time was actually not cancer. It was something called neurosarcoidosis of the central nervous system. And it has many, many similarities to cancer. For example, it causes the formation of these, it's a collection of abnormal cells called granulomas that form growths like tumors in various parts of the body. They attack all the body's major organs, and including the brain. Um, they cause your immune system to attack itself, and, um, and it's incredibly painful. And so the way that it is treated, there's no cure for it. There's only less than three or 400 people in the country that have this disease, and um, there's no cure. But the treatment is chemo and steroids and sometimes antibiotics through the IV and you're in the, in the hospital usually for, for 10 to 14 days to run this course of steroids. It's called solumedrol. And, um, and that usually kind of quiets things down, calms it down, keeps it at bay, and it, and it just keeps flaring up. And it affects your vision, affects your hearing. Um, I have severe hearing loss. From, from this, um, the nerve pain, the neuropathy, all that stuff's a big part of it. Um, but I'm grateful to God and the prayers of so many people, my friends, my family, the community where I live, uh, people I've worked with, um, two different church families, people all over the country uh, have prayed for me. And I went into remission in February of 2018, and um, shortly after that, I think it was June or July of that year, I was walking at, at a state park in Virginia where I live and kept my cane in the car, and I walked up the side of this mountain. Um, it's not a super steep mountain, but it's still a mountain. And I walked up the side of this mountain and I turned around and faced the Shenandoah Valley and thrust both my arms in the air because I was told that I would never walk without assistance ever again. And so it was a, it was a really important moment in my life. 
We're going to take a quick break to discuss Write It Down's brand new website. You can head over to widpod.com, W-I-D-P-O-D.com, and see all the goods. You'll notice a banner at the top of the page that says Learn More. If you click that link, it'll show you how you can support Write It Down. P.S. My favorite part about the website is the Wid Wall, which is a collection of all the Write It Downs from the show. This podcast is made possible by the 1513 Network. So, show the network some love and support by listening to their other shows. If not, just stick with Write It Down, because I'm the coolest, the realest, the illest. Now, back to the show. I am also a musician. Um, I'm a songwriter and a, and a, uh, a musician and have a wonderful band, and um, it's called the Talton Brothers Band. And so I, when I was as a patient at Johns Hopkins, um, these songs were just kind of laid on my heart. Lyrics and music and melodies and all of it just happened and just like downloaded into my brain. And I wrote a song called View From Above which is probably the most personal song I've ever written. And it was literally about that experience of being given this terrible news and then um, praying and and really humbling myself um, and not worrying about what I had lost. It's very easy as human beings to worry about losing your house or worry, you know, that your bank account's negative you lost everything. Um, it's very easy to focus on those things. And if you do, you don't have the strength to fight anything when you're focused on those things. And so, again, just focusing my life from a, and, and living from a perspective of gratitude, again, just for waking up in the morning. I used to take medication at night because I was so terrified that I would not wake up. And uh, that was probably the toughest time of my life. But um, very grateful uh, to have uh, survived. Um, I know a lot of people don't survive. Um, they don't survive cancer. They don't survive diseases like, like mine. Um, what I do now is try to raise awareness about neurosarcoidosis at any chance that I get. As a musician, I get to share some of that. Um, you know, the songs that I write are all personal. They're all really written from that perspective of gratitude um, and hopefully encouraging people to maybe give, give them pause and to, to think about things a little differently. Um, it's so easy to just get lost in this cycle of living our days the same every single day because that's what we do. Well, when you do that, then all of a sudden weeks and months and years go by and all you've done is just exist instead of living. And there's a big difference between living and being alive. Everybody's alive. Not everybody's living. There's a big difference. And so, um, you know, or being alive, I guess, or awake, um, it has awakened me in, in ways that I never thought were possible. Um, 
it also get it, it also gave me pause to evaluate my friendships and my relationships and to let go of negativity and people that were toxic you know people that you meet where you go to lunch with them and all they talk about is how terrible things are and how terrible their life is or how terrible you know their family is or and it might sound terrible for me to say this, but I can't be around that anymore. Um, I stopped watching the news six years ago in 2015. Really stopped watching television. It was the single best decision I've ever made. And um, so anyway, uh, that, that's, that's kind of my, uh, my story. But I would encourage people to think about living from a perspective of gratitude, learning how to center yourself and to take a moment and pray. Praying helps you get out of yourself, whether it's praying or meditation or whatever you want to call it. But just t talking to, to something greater than you, the creator of this universe, um, it really has helped me in ways that I can't, I can't even adequately explain it in words. I'm a different man than I was, you know, in 2015. Um, I'm grateful every day for the person that I am today. No, that's for sure. <clears throat> Listen, I want to pick up something um, about your relationship with Dr. Levy. Yeah. Um, this is just no average doctor. Right. Can you tell us a little about some of his accomplishments, because he has some accomplishments that some people in the audience might be familiar with. Sure. So he uh, has worked with, he's been at, at Johns Hopkins for a number of years um, in neurosurgery and neurology. And he's worked um, with Dr. Ben Carson uh, for a lot of years. And, and um, yeah, he's one of the most brilliant minds on the face of the earth. Um, but he, his ability to talk to me about things that didn't involve drugs or therapies or treatments or something, some new drug in the IV, he didn't talk about medicine ever. He never talked about drugs. I don't even think he prescribed anything to me. Um, all he talked about was having faith believing that I was going to live, having something to live for, and getting out of the hospital. So it's a mindset. Absolutely. He focused almost entirely on what my life was going to be like once I left the hospital, as opposed to, you're here, it's bad, and you're going to be here a long time. He didn't treat me that way at all. He was getting you to fix, fixate on hope. Absolutely. And you guys have a relationship still to this day. We do. That's incredible. Yeah. You, you told me that you text we do. back and forth together. He still right. encourages you. Right. Um, without him, do you get the proper diagnosis? No. I would have been dead. I would have died in 2015. For sure. And, and also, that was a lesson in, in advocacy, too, for your own health care. No one's going to speak up for you. Every hospital has a patient advocate. 
But when you're in the bed and you're hooked up to all the machines, you can't fight for yourself. And so if you have any strength at all to talk, I would recommend that you just ask as many questions as you can. If you can't ask the questions, have someone there, whether it's a a loved one or a friend or a neighbor, a pastor, someone, um, have someone there with you that can ask questions when the doctor walks in your room and write the answers down. Um, because that's a, that's a really important thing to do. Um, but speaking up, uh, it's okay to ask to go to a different hospital. It's okay to ask to see a different doctor. Um, I'm fortunate. I live two hours away from Johns Hopkins. It's one of the finest hospitals in the world. Matter of fact, when I was there, there, there was a, this might violate HIPAA. I don't know, <laughs> but we're all talking about healthcare now. But there was, <laughs> there was a woman in the room next to me who was uh, um, queen of Saudi Arabia, or princess, I'm sorry, crown princess of Saudi Arabia. And she had, you know, some health challenges. And so she was there just like I was. And um, people come from all over the world to go there. And what you learn when you're there, for many people, that's their last hope. That's it. That's the end of the line. It goes no further. And there's so many people that are chasing a diagnosis, knowing that they're sick, knowing that there's something wrong. And they've been from hospital to hospital to hospital and from specialist to specialist to specialist. And just like me, they spent tens of thousands of dollars that they don't have to save their own lives. And I really, there's something wrong with that. You shouldn't lose everything you ever worked for just because you're sick. Right. But I went through that experience. There's countless others that go through it as well. But again, I would, I would really, I can't stress it enough um, to advocate for yourself. And if you can't do it, beseech someone that, that cares about you to do it on your behalf. It's really important. Can you point to a specific time when you were going through chemo, when you felt that you turned a corner or hope seemed imminent or was it a gradual thing actually um anyone that's that's gone through that treatment understands what it what it does to your body it makes you feel like you're wearing a lead bodysuit it's like having the flu every day for months and never getting better there were so many days where um i live in a a music studio and um, there's so many days where my whole day consisted of moving from the couch to my bathroom and sometimes not even making it back to the couch. I would just clutch my pillow and lay on the floor in between the bathroom and the couch. That's how bad it was. By yourself? By myself. And, uh, or I would lay down in the bathroom. I spent many nights all night in the bathroom on the floor. And because uh, I, was, I was too sick, I couldn't move. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, in uh, I guess it was 20, 
16, I think it was, the end of 2016, I had, I was in so much pain and feeling so terrible that I, I told my family that I was just going to stop doing chemo, stop taking anything, and just let it ride and just go, right. whatever that meant, and whenever time, whatever time that meant. And there were several family members that understood why I was saying that, and then there was family members that didn't understand that. Um, and people really rallied around me. My children rallied around me, and uh, and I prayed, you know, to ask for wisdom and to have peace about making a decision like that. Lots of people make that decision too to stop doing treatment. The treatment's worse than the disease. It's terrible. I, I can't even put into words how bad it is. Um, but something within me uh, told me just to hang in there, to center myself, and to focus on getting better. And so I agreed to continue on. And then in February of 2018, I had my first clear scan. Uh, I, had it, I hadn't had a clear scan in years. And so... Um, Anybody that goes through that experience, uh, when you have a scan scheduled the night before the scan, mm. you can't sleep, you can't talk, you can't concentrate on anything. It's so stressful. And then when you're waiting for the results after you have the scan, it takes, you know, days. And it's just really, really stressful. Your so mind really plays. It really does, yeah. But I really do feel that, that the mind plays a, a huge role in our in our recovery um it plays a huge role in it, it, whether we're sick and we stay sick or whether we get better now there's there's people who have great attitudes that that pass away unfortunately my dad was one of those people um greatest man i've ever known in my life my dad and i started chemo at the same time actually and my dad died in uh, march of 2016 um, and that was the toughest experience I've ever been through in my life. Um, and a part of me felt like, you know, my dad's not here anymore. I don't want to be here either. Right. You know? Um, but again, something, uh, really stirred in me and, and helped me to fight. And so I continued to fight and then went into remission. So I don't, I'm not, I don't have a clean bill of health. This can come back at any time and take me. But I know for a fact that since I went into remission, I've lived my days intentionally in a completely different way than the way I was living before. And I wouldn't change a thing about it. I wouldn't. Um, so I'm just, I'm grateful to be alive. So, Well, that's the truth. Um, <clears throat> as far as our relationship's concerned, what I see in you is... Uh, I see how you cherish um, every little bit of life, every relationship, every friendship. We played golf together about two years ago now, um, came down to this ratty municipal golf course that we have down here, and you were out with your camera taking pictures of the trees, the alligators, <laughs> all the wildlife, 
you had a keen sense of everything that was going on around you and an appreciation unlike anybody else that was in our group that day because of all of your experiences. And one of the things that I appreciate the heck out of you is how you appreciate others and how you cherish and value other people in those relationships. And uh, it truly is an encouragement. And this show is about inspiring and encouraging other people's people's <laughs> encouraging other people. And you certainly have done that today. Hey, I want to fast forward uh, to what's going on in your life today. You're one heck of a talented guy. Uh, you played many sports, golf, basketball, baseball. You've done it all, done a little bit of everything. You mentioned before you're a singer and songwriter. You play several instruments. I remember back to our, back in the days, of high, in the high school days, um, our talent show. You knocked it out of the park. Um, none of our friend group knew you had so much stinking talent. Um, rocking Elton John on the piano. And uh, that was a fun day. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know this guy had all this talent. That was fun. And uh, certainly you still enjoy all those things today. So you had this incredible uh, opportunity to go to a recording studio called Muscle Shoals. Now, I'm not super familiar with it. I don't know if, if the audience is going to be super familiar with Muscle Shoals. Mm -hmm. But tell us a little bit about uh, this recording studio that you, you were able to play in a few years ago called Muscle Shoals. Yeah, so um, Greg Allman, who was a, a huge uh, influence on me, um, passed away in 2018, I think it was, in, in early part of 2018, maybe May. And he, he had released uh, posthumously uh, an album called Southern Blood, and I grew up a you know a huge fan of the Almond Brothers and and him and and all of that and um, was just really influenced by his singing voice, by his songwriting, by his organ playing and his guitar playing and his piano playing and just a incredibly talented person. And when his solo album came out, um, I downloaded it that morning, the the morning it came out. And I was listening to it in my car on the way to work, and I knew that it had been recorded at Muscle Shoals, at Fame Recording Studio, and which is one of the most famous recording or recording studios in the country that that you probably have never heard of. And so many artists recorded there, from Otis Redding to Aretha Franklin to Little Richard to you know Wilson Pickett. I mean, you name it, there's just so many people and so many songs that, that everyone knows, everyone grew up with. Um, Etta James recorded there. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. And so, again, I knew that, that Greg Allman had recorded there. And so when I got to work, I, you know, sent an email to Fame Recording Studio and they called me back two weeks later and said, hey, can you send a video or, you know, a recording of anything that you've ever done? And so I did, and, um, and the owner of the studio called me back and um, said, hey, we'd love to have you come here and record. Um, 
he said, you can record in Studio A. Well, they have two studios, Studio A and B. And Studio A is where all those incredible recordings were done. Um, so I literally fell on the floor on my knees and thank God. Uh, it, was, it was one of the best phone calls of my <laughs> life. And um, so with Mr. Hall. And so I told my band about it and we, uh, you know, we put together kind of like a campaign to raise money to, to get there and to get the recording done. And our community all rallied around us and a good friend of mine, uh, Nick Narangis, who owns a, a Alamo Draft House Cinema, um, they put together a special night where they did a screening of the Muscle Shoals documentary and had my band play um, after the, the movie or That's before cool. the movie and uh, to connect our band to that film and that place. And so um, we raised, you know, a fair amount of money that night, which helped us get there and help pay for the recording and everything. Um, but once we got there, we, uh, we arrived um, two different cars, uh, some of us on Thursday and or Friday and, and the rest of us the next day. But myself, um, our guitar, both of our guitar players and our drummer um, rode down in the first car together. And we arrived, I guess, around maybe four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, it was just a big deal pulling in their parking lot. And so we get there and we walked in and, you know, I talked to the person that I'd been talking to on the phone for months and he said, yeah, just load your gear in the side and I'll, I'll let you in the side. Well, we go and load our gear and stuff in there. And, um, there's hundreds of people in the parking lot and like fans from all over. And we had no idea. <laughs> what was going on and they're going nuts because we're walking in the place. They think we're like famous musicians. <laughs> we're nobodies obviously. And, um, but it felt cool to feel like that for a little bit. <laughs> so we, we go and drop off our stuff and, and, uh, and then we start looking around and we read the signs that these people had made, like these posters that they painted or, you know, magic marker, whatever. And they all said Steven Tyler. And people had like their Aerosmith posters, like the stuff you get at the county fair and right. you know, all this Aerosmith stuff. And and we're thinking, what in the world is going on? Is Aerosmith here? I had no idea what was going on. So I go and talk to our our engineer, John, and he says, Yeah, man, Steven Tyler's in Studio A. I said, What? He goes, Yeah. And Nuno Betancourt's in there with him. Nuno Betancourt was in the band Extreme and uh, with Gary Sharon, and great, 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 great musician. And so they're in there recording Brown Sugar. <laughs> Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones was actually recorded in Muscle Shoals. And so um, Rodney Hall, who owns it, owns the theater, or owns the studio, um, was doing this project where they had all these famous artists come in and, and re-record these songs that were so famously recorded there. And so Steven Tyler loved the Stones and loved 
you know, brown sugar. And so that was the one he was doing. So we're hearing all this stuff through the walls. And we're all looking at each other like, holy cow, what is happening to us? You know, this band from Winchester, Virginia. And the, one of the most famous voices of the 20th century is in there killing it. And um, so, yeah, it was it was a great experience. What an incredible opportunity that yeah. was. Thank you. Well, Rob, before we get to the write it down part of our show, I want to ask you a couple rapid fire questions. Uh-huh. You know, just lighthearted questions. Uh, mountains or beach? Got to go with beach. Got to go with water. Yeah. Florida boy. Yes, that's right. All right. Native Floridian. Van Halen with David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? Ooh. 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 Wow. Wow. (laughs) Really? I'm a fan of both iterations. Okay, huge. You don't have to be politically correct. I'm a huge fan of both, both bands. Um. Sammy, by far, is a is a much better singer, uh, much better songwriter. But for what happened with that band at the time that they came on the scene, there was nobody like David Lee Roth. No, the world had never seen anything like that guy. And he was the right man for that band at that time. And they produced a sound that is instantly recognizable. Um, it's hard rock like nobody had ever heard before. Eddie Van Halen was like Mozart on a guitar. And um, they revolutionized rock music. Um, so I got to go with David Lee Roth. Oof. All right. Is that going to change our friendship? Huh? <laughs> it might. I don't have the depth of explanation that you did, but I just like Sammy Hagar's voice better. <laughs> <laughs> It is no question who's the better singer. Okay. Right. All right. Football or baseball? Ooh. <laughs> baseball. All right. Watching or playing? I can't play anymore. No, so. no. I mean, do you prefer to watch baseball or prefer to watch football? Watch baseball, actually. Wow. Yeah. We got a true throwback in the yeah. studio today. Yeah. All right. Last question. Mm-hmm. Heavy metal or jazz music? Ooh, wow. The older I get, um, I, I love metal. I do. I, I've been listening to it. I've played it. I've, you know, had some opportunities to be around that, that music. Um, but I really have come to really appreciate jazz and, and come to appreciate artists that um, the world really uh, never got to experience on the same level as the Beatles or the Stones, but uh, artists like Miles Davis or John Coltrane, you know, people like that, Herbie Hancock, um, you know, Theolonius Monk, uh, Duke Ellington, people like that, um, Dave Brubeck, uh, I could go on and on, but I... um, I've come to really appreciate jazz. Um, and there's different styles of jazz, too. Um, but I've come to re- appreciate jazz, so i got to go with jazz. All right, jazz it is. All right, Rob, we're at the part of the show where we ask each guest to share a nugget of wisdom with the audience or something to write down. 
Rob Talton, what is your write it down? Gratitude. Gratitude. Write it down. Rob Talton. Rob, thanks again for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Write It Down podcast. This podcast is a part of the 1513 Network. You can catch a variety of shows on their website, 1513.com. If you enjoy listening to Write It Down, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if there's any ink left in your pen, write a review. For more content, follow the fun on Instagram by following at W-I-D-P-O-D. That spells WIDPOD. Super cool. Stands for Write It Down Podcast, but it's abbreviated to WIDPOD. Anyways, thanks for listening, and we will catch you later.